Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Uh, hey, it's Matt. Uh, my guest today is Mike Consul. Uh, he's been a friend of mine for a long time, a really smart guy, a, a wise policy thinker. He's got a new book out. It's called Freedom from the Market. It's a little bit elevated from sort of the policy debates of the day. It gets just some big conceptual stuff. I, I like big ideas. I'm, I'm a big ideas guy, and his ideas here are really big. Um, so check out our conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot about history and, and a bunch of cool stuff. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Mike Consul, is the Director of Progressive Thought at uh, Roosevelt Institute. Uh, but more importantly, uh, he is the author of a new book, Freedom from the Market. Uh, and we are going to talk about what that means and, and sort of what um, inspired him to write it. It's, it's really interesting. You know, I mean, we're, we're also recording on Inauguration Day. I'm not sure this has like super direct applicability to what the Biden administration is going to be dealing with this week. Uh, but I think in terms of the broader themes of how progressives think about government, uh, it's it's really critical. So, Mike, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, so. The market, I think we know, you buy and sell things there. And typically when we think about sort of constraining the market or what can be problems with the market, uh, we we talk at least in, in recent generations about regulations, right? That you might, you know, change markets, shape markets, constrain markets, whatever you might say. Uh, but this book is really not about that, right? Like freedom from the market in your view um, or at least in the terms you're using it here, is not like regulating a market. It's genuinely not having one. Right. So there, the the paradigm that is often used is things like market failure, which is to say that there's markets, but sometimes they don't work. There's incomplete information. Sometimes people don't have the resource they need. And so it's how do you make markets work better or how do you make them more complete uh, in some economics terms? Um, this is actually trying to go somewhere else with that and saying that not only do we not, we need to expand out from that mindset, we need to think in terms of freedom and the way that for us to lead genuinely free lives, it requires being able to access key goods outside of the market and outside of market relationships and our dependency on the market. We can kind of talk a little bit about what capitalism means and its relationship to markets in a little bit. And then in other parts of this, in the same way, we need to suppress markets and suppress the ability of markets to dominate things like our free time or the ability of businesses to discriminate against their customers. And by drawing on a really long, the, the book is a series of eight policy battles. 
going back to the Homestead Act. And in each one of them, we talk about the way people viewed a problem with the way the market was in their lives and how they both challenged it as a political campaign, but also articulated a vision of freedom that involved not just fixing the market, but moving beyond it. Right. And so, you know, I mean, just like examples around you as you as you move about your life, right? You know, like a park in the city or the library. Uh, these are not, um, they're non-market provisions of things, which could be and are. I mean, obviously people get books in the market um, and to an extent, the sort of recreations that are available in, in parks are also available for sale in, in certain respects. But you can create things that are just not that, right? And it's, I don't know, like, it's nice. You can go go take your kids to the playground. Uh, but, like, let's talk about the Homestead Act, because that's a really, you know, deep, old-school sort of American institution. And, and like, how, how does that fit into this? Yeah, the, the book actually comes out of, like, old blogosphere fights about the libraries, uh, and, and veterans of the economics blogs might remember that. Just talking about the library and the way the library operates, just like you go there and you get a book and, you know, you have to have a, an ID and, and things like that. And you have certain kinds of responsibility that are independent of your ability to pay. And, you know, like that often was a, a touchstone to think, OK, but like, why why isn't that logic in other parts of our lives? <laughs> Not just when it comes to like getting a book or using the computer. And, um, you know, so the book is a history. So it starts um, way back with the, the Homestead Act. And you know, the Homestead Act is obviously very controversial. It's built on settler colonialism. But one reason I really wanted to start there is because it's a period before the rise of industrial capitalism when people just talk about wealth and the economy in just a very different way. Part of the premise of the book and one of the reasons it's a history and one of the reasons we talk about freedom is to kind of dislodge the way market thinking just really inhabits uh, so many parts of our lives. And it's the way, it's the kind of like the, the air we breathe, the water we swim in kind of metaphor. And, um, you know, back then there was the Western frontier uh, and it was being taken uh, as part of a, a project of expansion. And there's a real debate about whether or not it would go to expand slavery uh, and the slave power, whether or not it would go to just resource extraction and kind of business interest, or whether or not you would actually carve it up to kind of create a certain kind of citizen who is free uh, from market dependency. And, the, and some of the original um, bigger uh, people who fought for it really did see it as an alternative to waged labor, uh, that they saw that it was a way that you could have people create uh, a lifestyle and create a, a, a world that obviously existed in, in a marketplace, but wasn't dependent on the market, that people had a freedom from the market. And um, that vision did not survive industrialization. And it's uh, there's a lot of reasons why, but it it's just a different way about talking about collective wealth. And I think it's really interesting to see the way it evolved and, and the ways it worked and did not work. So just, just you know, take people through what, what it was, right? So the, oh, sure. the, the, the federal government had all this land or stole the land. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I think we're going to have to sort of yada yada past how they came to have possession of it. Uh, but like a, a modern way of thinking about this might be to say, well, you should sell this land to whoever can utilize it most efficiently. Some kind of like large, you know, capital intensive agricultural combine, then you'll get a lot of money and then you could use the money, you know, we, we could give it to people. We could finance a welfare state, um, something like that. We could cut taxes. I mean, who knows? Uh, you could do a lot by selling things, uh, but that's not what was done, right? The, the, the homestead idea had a kind of very particular vision of how Western agriculture should look. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the expansion took place through um, the, the metaphor that, that really stuck with me from, from my research was a mix of law and conquest. But as time went on, the law became somewhat indistinguishable from conquest uh, or, or, or trade and conquest. And it sort of became indistinguishable from each other as time went on. So, yeah, it was just a promise that we will give you a bunch of acres of land if you are willing to settle on it and not try to, like, resell it right away. Uh, and after five years, and then there's there's a lot of things about it. You could, like, buy it early and get out of it, move the country in certain ways. But it was a promise that if people were willing to go to and settle the land, you could have it. Uh, and you you didn't have to have uh, – you didn't have to buy things. You didn't, you didn't have to buy into it. Um, the people who articulated it – Understood it is um, the metaphor that was often used was like a safety valve that as the cities and as kind of like early modern capitalism was was starting in the 1850s that you know as the cities were were having all these like wage problems and, and strikes and like kind of early class conflict this would be a safety valve and people could go out and use this land as an alternative to being dependent on wage labor you know the idea of free labor free soil which was very key to the early Republican Party. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln and people like that in the 1850s and 1860s. You know, this was one of the end results of it, alongside um, public works and free college and, and a lot of other things that the Whig Party had brought to the table in the 1850s. And you know, obviously, it's more complicated than that because, like, you know, the other thing was that when there were recessions and there was like starting to become real like deep recessions at the time, you know, people could if they couldn't find work, they could go do this instead. So it kind of had this um, welfare state, social insurance, job guarantee kind of component to it. Now, obviously, the actual execution of it's a lot harder because um, resource extraction and like very powerful businesses did, in fact put pressure to get the best land. And, you know, when there's a recession, you need money to be able to move out and start up and people didn't have that. So like, you know, it was, there were still problems with the way it was executed, but the vision of it, um, I think was quite powerful. And it's just so alien to how we would talk about now. Now we talk about wealth, like our, our wealth is, is something that's almost um, ethereal and abstract. And to the extent we even think about it, we think about it as something very moral and earned. We're here. And maybe it was the fact that it was settler colonialism that kind of ripped the veil off that. Um, it was understood as like, this is something we need to decide how we're going to expand and what kind of people do we want. And meanwhile, at the same time, this is a huge sectoral conflict. The South does not want small scale personal farms because you can't use that for con production and slave labor. And so um, the South is fighting it and vetoing the Homestead Acts that are passing in the late 1850s. And, and they're articulating a very different kind of uh, vision of the market and freedom on the frontier. So it's just a cool thing to, to see the way people talk about it at the time and what happened with it, uh, which, you know, it, it did transfer roughly the size that I think California and Texas put together was delivered free to people. Uh, it's, it's an amazing transfer of wealth, uh, unrivaled, except for things like the Emancipation Proclamation uh, in our history. And, and the idea is that it's, it's it's not that markets don't exist, or you you obviously buy things and and you sell your output, uh, but the land itself is sort of transferred to you on the grounds that you work it yourself and become, you know, like an independent farmer, right? So it, rather than uh, a big class of landowners who have a huge amount of hired labor or slave labor, right? That it's it's family farms, right? Which continues to play an incredible role in American rhetoric and sort of like worst case scenario, you can eat your own food, right? You're not, you, you, you exist in a society that has markets, but you, in a pretty literal sense, like have your own kind of island that you can retreat to and, and not participate in commodity exchange. Exactly. Um, you know, it's like way people talk about like wealth transfers now or like basic wealth grants and things like that, but like actually lived through the experience. 
people, millions of people now are descendants of people who uh, inherited so, or got some wealth from this program. And, um, you know, like it's, it's exactly that it's, it's, you know, the book talks about um, all these arguments about how um, the notion of land itself just messes with our idea of property because property is like, well, I made something, therefore I own it, but nobody makes the land, uh, especially in this case, um, the land's already there. And um, this thing has always tripped up philosophers of property going back to John Locke and, and you know, Thomas Paine wrote a lot about this, like the idea of like, how can you have land and property because nobody makes the land? It's land's almost always taken in conquest. And therefore you really do have this sense of like, well, what's the public obligation here? What, in what terms do we spread out this land? And it is exactly the case that people will still, you know, make food for trade. Uh, markets will still exist, but the idea of capitalism here in the sense the, the idea of market dependency, that you are dependent on the market to get the land that you need to survive, that has been taken out of the equation. All right. So what are the others? So you've got you've got sort of eight case studies here. Let's just let, let people know what what are they? Sure. So land lands a, a, a very um, unique to the time argument. But um, the second chapter is uh, the eight hour workday in free time, uh, which is incredibly relevant today as people are overworked or they're chronically underworked. Uh, and crucially, they don't have a lot of control over their time, especially in a lot of um, service industry jobs. And so that chapter, we talk a lot about um, the fight over making the argument for how having a limitation on the numbers of hours we work is a requirement for being able to lead free lives, for just being able to participate in society, um, creating communities, having time with our families and loved ones. Uh, and also the counter attack on that by especially the courts, who in the Lochner decision overturned a maximum hour rule uh, for bakers in New York and kind of set the tone for a lot of early 20th century conservative uh, jurisprudence. And it's a real fight. It's not just a matter of, you know, do we work too many hours? You know, like what's what's the marginal trade-off between leisure and income and consumption uh, and the kind of market failure language. The people who are articulating this really understand that their lives are degraded if they don't have some control over the amount of hours that they work. Uh, that if the their bosses are, are allowed to tell them how much they have to work or the terms under which the hours they work. And we find you know, there's evidence going back, like the first probable general strike in the United States was in 1835 in Philadelphia over a 10-hour workday. And, um, you know, they're using language about how we as citizens, we as people who were in the revolution or children of the revolution have natural rights that people can't take from us. And that is included in that is time. And it's, I think, a very powerful set of examples for people out here who are trying to pass local municipal ordinances about people just being able to control their working hours. Let's just let's just get get I'm the quick. Gonna, hands. I'm going I'm to yeah. rip them all out. So uh, the so next one is the the, the invention of uh, social insurance in the 19-teens, and the people who mm -hmm. articulated what would become social security, and then uh, free security is the New Deal, and the Wagner Act, and the Social Security Act, and the fights about making them. Then uh, there's a chapter about World War II daycares, which is this amazing story about how the government created universal public daycares overnight, like within a year, and then um, people fought to try to keep them going. They failed. Uh, then there's the creation of Medicare and how it was used to desegregate Southern hospitals is a real example about how public programs can set a level of provisioning the market can't. And then there's the retreat chapters, the neoliberalism chapters. We can talk about that term if we want to. But um, the current day chapters, uh, and notably the public corporation, the public domain, the public utility in one chapter and how the publicness of them was stripped out through law. And then the last chapter concludes with student loans and how a certain kind of citizenship is created um, when we're required to invest in ourselves to get education that has historically been free in this country. So I think that's a good one to to talk about because student loans, you know, comes up 
a lot. I mean, I think the, the, the conflict here is easy to sort of understand because we obviously have a lot of non-commodity education um, in the United States. Uh, the vast majority of people go uh, from kindergarten through 12th grade to free local public schools. And then you switch uh, to college where, A, lots of people don't go, and B, those who do go typically pay. And then you can't always afford to go. So we have this loan scheme, right? And the idea is that uh, college education is valuable, so you ought to pay for it, uh, which is a kind of normal market logic. Uh, whereas through grade 12, we have the opposite logic, which is that education is good, so we ought to provide it to people, right? And so like, how does that arise? Like, How do we get this dichotomy right within the educational sphere? Right. So it's actually interesting is that college being expensive and public college not being free essentially doesn't exist before the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Tuition, to the extent it exists, is very, very small, maybe hundreds of dollars in current day dollars. Uh, and that's a and that's was a choice historically, in part because the country always had so many farmers and so many engineers and so much interest. There's always a real emphasis on being able to educate a workforce that had these skills. But more generally, when you look at, say, the Morrell Act, which is, one again, one of those um, Lincoln-era uh, Republican bills for free college, they really understood that what they wanted higher education to do was to collapse the distinction between elite education and mass education uh, and ensure that there was always some mechanism to get people to get college education without necessarily having to go through elite institutions, which have different priorities, um, elite private institutions that just have different priorities than um, educating as many people who need education. They want to craft their student bodies and, and do other kinds of things. And starting in the 1960s and 70s, you kind of have two attacks. This like pincer move on free college. One comes from conservatives, which view that uh, essentially bring the modern culture war to the campus. And, uh, you know, the book talks about how Governor Ronald Reagan did this in California uh, and how he was the first to try to propose tuition and and fought with, with Berkeley and the University of California system, which was built up over generations to be this kind of system where anyone with the interest and ability could graduate from one of the best colleges in the world. And we can romanticize the system, but I think it's important to understand the baseline of where they are coming from. It's noteworthy that the culture war started against it exactly at the time at which um, women and people of color were much more likely to start attending college in the 1960s. And then on the other hand, you have um, a, a neoliberal a, a attack on the idea that the government should be in the business of providing goods outside the bare necessities of what governance requires. And there we talk about the near bankruptcy of New York City, where tuition was imposed on its um, city college system, which again had been free or near free for centuries and was a quite an important part of New York civic culture. In the near bankruptcy uh, the people who executed that said that they needed to impose college, not because it was actually an important price point, but more to send a message. I think they use the word they use the word shock in, in the kind of modern sense that like the IMF uses. Um, they wanted to send a message that people can't expect this of their government anymore. And it kind of like it's, it's this idea that that's not what the government's for anymore. The government is more about bare necessities and then we can kind of fill in the, the corners wherever we need them. OK, let's take a break. And I, I want to return to the sort of Reagan culture war angle in this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So this always strikes me just as a concrete case where I feel like the the left thinking has some perhaps internal contradictions, which is that if you make higher education or at least a segment of it, like a real public responsibility where it is being overwhelmingly funded by taxpayer dollars, then it seems like inevitably, like just as you would say in any of these other cases, right? It's like, well, we're going to have democratic control over the institution, which is going to mean, it seems to me, that college campuses have to be less left-wing than they are. Like, University faculty are way to the left of the American public in terms of the content of their curriculum, and they want academic freedom, right? They don't want, like, the Trump administration 1776 project telling them how they need to tell the story of American history. But a truly public institution would be accountable to electoral politics in that kind of way. Um, so yes, there's a couple ways to approach this. One is that the, the method of attack, um, is through students' ability to attend it. Not obviously there is a separate line of attack about faculty and tenure and, you know, trying to get all these professors fired through these kind of like shady campaigns, but that's not actually how you get to student loans. The actual set of circumstances that create student loans are more about the students themselves and more about the idea that and this takes a real hold in the policy community that we should understand what's happening is the students are making an investment in themselves. And as such, like a firm or like a, a little company, 
they have a responsibility to the risk reward structure of their education. This is different than just like the general, you should go get a good education or you should get skills or why are you getting a degree that doesn't get you a good job? Like those things have always been around. This market thinking about how we should understand people as being little companies that invest in themselves and therefore they should have an individualized sense of return and risk. And thus we need to give them a capital market to fund that in the same way large corporations have capital markets. That actually is created and executed in a world that's sort of different than like just there's left-wing campus protesters. And, and obviously it extends quite deeply well beyond the elite colleges where a lot of these uh, culture war issues take place. No, but I mean, that, that's what I'm saying, though, that it's the sort of semi-privatization of higher education I think has facilitated it, – it's not something that like um, left-wing college professors agree with, but I think that it is in some ways more comfortable for them than a world in which we are saying – right? Because so it's not an investment in yourself, right? It's a, it's a public investment. These are collective choices that we make about what is valuable in society. And that means, you know, money. It has implications for, for financing. But it also means that it would, in fact, have to reflect things that some, quote unquote, we think are valuable, Right. So like the the original land grant colleges, they have a lot of focus on like, I don't know what, like improving farm techniques. Right. Because like that's that's the justification for it. Right. It's not a consumer experience. It's a public investment in something that the public finds valuable, which I think is going to cause more questions to be asked about like what is being taught and whether it's justifiable to a democratic public. Yeah, I mean, so but even if you look back at the Morale Act, they actually make a very big point of making sure it's a well-rounded education because they don't they, they want it to have, I suppose, a classical is the, the phrase they use at the time, but not just skills and technology uh, or technical skills, uh, but they actually want the education to be well-rounded and leading, like a, like a very good education. So they hmm. take a lot of pride in that. I think if even if you could diffuse this culture war issue, or even if there was a big right wing hiring thing, or maybe if they, I don't know, taught the 1776 pamphlet at <laughs> schools, I don't think that would reverse the issue of the fact that people really like the idea that student loans are being used as the main funding mechanism, or at least elites who dictate higher education policy. And um, I mean, if you actually watch the way that this happens, it does it doesn't necessarily mimic the culture war, though that obviously is how it's read. Uh, basically, states disinvest every time there's a recession. Uh, starting in the 1970s and then never reinvest uh, in the good times. Meanwhile, places like Harvard and elsewhere realize that they can charge a lot more and then just discount the tuition for people who they want to come who can't afford the high tuition. So you see a big skyrocketing tuition wave that's largely about the fact that people really need college education to, or people who want it really need it. Uh, and there's, you know, this real race to get into elite schools. And, and obviously the economy itself is becoming more unequal. So the pressure to go to an elite school is increased. So there's a lot of ways to explain how we got here that isn't necessarily about that. And I don't think even if you could have a culture war Armistead, whatever that would look like, I don't think that solves it. I think we really need to articulate why student loans are just not a good way for us to approach higher education as a society. So then your uh, the, the, the Medicare case sort of takes like the opposite 
horn of this, right? And and you tell the story about how, you know, the federal government stepping into healthcare financing, you know, played into the the longstanding racial conflicts in the South, essentially because you know it, it gives it gives the federal government a, a lever into saying how hospitals are going to operate. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, something I did not realize until I started to investigate this, and um, uh, you've written about it and and discussed it elsewhere, is that um, after Brown versus Board of Education, not a lot of things desegregated. Like a lot of schools in the South and even in the border states did not desegregate. Um, And crucially, a lot of public institutions that were receiving federal dollars, notably federally constructed hospitals in the 1940s, which there was this big wave of to basically make up for the disinvestment of the longstanding Great Depression and the rework of society towards total war in, the, in World War II, there's just like a, like a real lack of medical facilities. And so the federal government steps up in the late 40s and it keeps those institutions segregated. It sets up the, the terms, even though it's federal money going into it, it basically says these are private institutions, local laws can dictate. And in the South, that means Jim Crow. And, you know, when Brown is passed, like courts, I think sometimes liberal and progressives have this sense like the courts can save us. But the courts are really good at knocking down reforms, but they're not necessarily good at affecting positive change because they don't control money. They work through elite institutions. They can't actually go anywhere and do stuff. So, you know, all through the the 50s, all these hospitals in the South, not all hospitals, but especially hospitals that are receiving federal money are are segregated. The Civil Rights Act passes, uh, which says that uh, makes it clear that places with federal money can't be segregated. And all these hospitals are like, well, we already received the money. You already built the hospital. So go F off. Like, we're not going to listen to you. And it's not until Medicare shows up and they have to decide who is eligible for Medicare funding. And they assemble a team at what what was then HUE, now is uh, Health and Human Services, people with real civil rights experience and say, we're not going to mess around with this. We're going to go hard and make sure your facilities are actually desegregated. And we're going to team up with networks of black medical professionals who know these areas quite well to ensure that this is the case. And they rapidly desegregate the South because at the end of the day, they're the ones who have the power of the purse and they can really affect change. And it shows the way in which public programs can really dictate end service access in a way that private subsidies or public-private partnerships cannot. You see it, the numbers are in the book, but the rate of child uh, mortality, the racial gap between that, uh, the the distinction collapses overnight. Even though that technology had always been there, the facilities just weren't there to administer to make sure young Black children were able to survive. And it's it's really heartbreaking to know that that had gone on so long, but it collapses immediately just because of the way these hospitals, um, Medicare forces them to change. And it, it's a way of talking about the way public programs work that I think is more profound than just the idea that they're like filling in the gaps or completing market failures. Right. So it's, it's just like incredibly uh, powerful lever, right? If you, if you decide what you want to do and you're actually running the program, right? I mean, to be, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit caricatured, but I think a, a like post neoliberal, you know, way of doing this would be like, oh, well, we're going to have like a refundable tax credit and you can only use it at a desegregated hospital. So now providers will have an incentive to create desegregated hospitals and, you know, like somewhere down the line, it's going to happen versus stepping in and being like, no, like this is how we're going to run it. Right. And yeah. then you and then you just sort of have to do it that way. But this gets to me to sort of the big puzzle um, that I have about America today, um, which is I see people not so much like theoretically skeptical 
of public, like direct public provision as practically skeptical. That it seems like direct public provision of things doesn't go that well, or people think it won't go well. That like, okay, you're going to build me a, a f- fabulous childcare system. But like, I, I don't believe that that will happen. Right, like my lived experience as a citizen of the United States is that some of the existing things that we have are really great, but that new stuff, like the last time, like when they tried to build an Affordable Care Act website, uh, they couldn't do that, and like somehow we can't administer vaccines anymore. And so, like, what, like, what, what was the 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 like lost wisdom of the mid twentieth century where the government could do things? Um, that's a great question. So. Uh- you know, on, on the popularity of, of programs, I mean, you look at things like Social Security and Medicare, they're incredibly popular. Um, public education is still very popular, too. Yeah. Um, it's precisely these areas in which you have, you're trying to so-called unleash market innovation that it suddenly becomes a lot more sketchy about how things work, right? So you look at the um, ACA website, smell functions, which were immediate. And, you know, obviously it's hard to start a website in general, uh, especially a complicated one. But one of the reasons that it had such a huge problem executing right away was because they had to f- calculate the subsidy people could get in real time, which required accessing a lot of different income forms and also talking with the insurance companies to understand their end and where people were. And that kind of means testing is actually really complicated. Uh, and it's not trivial to do. Uh, you know, the book talks about how Medicare was rolled out. They essentially just mailed people a punch card that said, check here if you want Medicare, yes or no. Check here if you want the one eligible part of Medicare, check yes or no. And they had a 90% plus response rate within a year. And it was Medicare was literally up and running within one calendar year, 365 days. And you contrast that with a lot of public-private partnership kind of uh, programs and, you know, it's a lot harder to do. It's harder to do. And you look at the ACA exchanges, one which was hard to launch, um, which, you know, obviously got up and running. But even now, struggles in places um, like rural communities where there often aren't many choices or maybe even no choices uh, because there just isn't the density of insurance and people where at the national level, we know we can absolutely insure everyone because we can do that with Medicare. Uh, states can do it with Medicaid and so on. Um, so the moment you start to segment, the moment you just try to means test, the moment you're relying on private insurers or private agents who don't necessarily have the incentive for universality or low cost or a certain level of service. Um, I don't know enough about the vaccine rollout. I know people are talking a lot about the partnership with local, with, with national chain pharmacies. I have no idea if that's actually what's the cause of it or not, but it certainly seems like um, it doesn't have that level of World War II mobilization people were hoping for over the last year with the last year of President Trump. But I think, you know, I, I, I was thinking about the uh, unemployment insurance you know, situation we've been we've been dealing with over over the past year. And there's a kind of funny fact that people always talk about in the in the CARES Act that like they they couldn't do percentage increases because of the nature of the computer systems and it's written in outdated uh software language. Um so it's like not a lot of people can write COBOL. Um and so I, I had Elizabeth Pancati on on the show and we, we were talking about all that. I, I was realizing like after we were done recording it's like, well, unemployment insurance predates computers, right? right. Like, <laughs> like it was possible to create Social Security and Medicare. I mean, I guess computers existed when Medicare started, but not like they do today, right? right. Like, this stuff was done, the Homestead Act, like somehow they were given away Western land <laughs> based on, I don't know what, paper in, in filing cabinets, Right. Yep. Like, I feel like somehow just like administrative capacity 
seems to have diminished since the era of, of a lot of these programs that you're talking about. That today, somebody would be like, well, our computers can't track who owns which pieces of land where. But like somehow the Lincoln administration could do it. Yeah, like unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance is actually particularly interesting because um, books talks about this is um, the reason it has this really weird, poorly thought out state structure is because the creators of it were certain that the conservative Supreme Court was going to kill it. And they thought if that they Mm -hmm. kind of like planted it in the states rather than just having a federal unemployment insurance in the same way, social security is not like state by state. And social security does not have this like weird component where it's like, well, do I live in a state that's good at administering social security? Like that it doesn't, it's not relevant. But it is for unemployment insurance in part because people thought that the Supreme Court was going to kill it and that they would let the state level parts continue on in the aftermath of the bloodbath. But then that didn't happen because FDR tried to pack the courts, uh, (laughs) which is a whole other history. But yeah, like unemployment insurance is actually a perfect example of where we've I think, let the system starve. And there's some states that have been able to execute it very well. Some states that have purposely wanted to neglect it to kick people off rolls. Um, you know, you see since 2010, fewer people are covered and they're covered less generously up until the CARES Act. But even then, and, and you know, we, you've written about this and we've talked about this, is that um, like it's amazing. They really expanded unemployment insurance rapidly. It shows what the government can actually do when they want to. Now, they have to work through an antiquated state system, a federal system. Um, a lot of these states just can't scale it up quickly. But, you know, within two months, people were able to start getting these checks out. And certainly within three or four months during a pandemic, when it's hard for people to meet in person and actually do things, you know, like it actually shows the scale that the government can execute when it wants to. And the book talks about World War II daycares, which were set up within a year. It's like crazy to imagine that now, just because like they actually needed to do it to fight the war. Yeah. So that's sort of my question. I used to think like pre-COVID, I always thought, well, you know, the thing about World War II is it was just like a really big problem. And so people were highly motivated to do it, like across parties, right? It it wasn't like, I I mean, I'm sure there were like right-wing people who were like, no, we should lose the war. But but I mean, you know, like most people, uh, you know, rich, poor, whatever, like wanted to win. So if you said, okay, we need a bunch of daycares so women can work in the factories, so men can go to the front, they were like, okay, let's let's try to do it. And they, they would make a good faith effort. The pandemic has just like blown my mind because it seems it seems like the incentives like were aligned. That like Donald Trump should have tried to make this go better and he would have been more popular and gotten reelected. And they like kind of tried to make vaccines and and stuff like that. So do you think, I mean, is this really where we need some kind of like ideological revolution that the sort of practical exigencies alone don't, don't carry us through? Yeah. So um, I I forgot who phrased it, but the idea that we had an Articles of Confederation response in 2020, uh, I don't know if everyone remembers that period in like April where states were forming loose bands of like states Uh were teaming (laughs) up into these like small scale alliances like California and Oregon teamed up to like secure uh, resources. So the book doesn't talk about industrial policy per se. It does talk about the way the corporate sector has changed in result of the um, uh, shareholder revolution and, and, and many other things. But that that lack of industrial policy, the idea that at the end of the day, the market's the one that should be determining what the allocation of goods are, uh, even in a pandemic, still hung over a lot. Like President Trump did not seem like a, a person who was afraid to grab executive power wherever he could, but it was telling he didn't really use the Defense Production Act to do 
affirmative things that would allow, that would come at the expense of private interest. I think he mostly used it in kind of bad ways. And that is definitely, I think, a hangover of, of the ideology of the last couple of decades. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's, let's take another break and, and come back. And, and I want to talk really big. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So I, I published a book uh, recently. It's very different from yours. Uh, but one way that I think is similar is that like both of our books like talk about America in a positive way. Right. That like a lot of this. Right. So you you have this history and it and it appeals to the idea that past things that were done by the federal government were good and that progressives should look to them as sources of inspiration, um, not just to like Finland as a director of progressive thought. Like, like, why is that important to look at sort of touchstones in the United States uh, to, to help us like understand our, our history and our future? Yeah, it's interesting because the book on one level is not a very positive story. Like it's, you know, the Southern Homestead Act fails under reconst- under the, you know, under white supremacy. Um, the Lochner court distorts our early era. You know, World War II daycares are pulled back. Neoliberalism reigns across the land today. But it's still positive because like people are fighting and articulating this vision and it's, you know, sometimes they win, sometimes they succeed and we can cheer that. And, you know, they're always, the fight itself has a value. And I think it's something that's inspirational for now. Um, there's kind of two questions here. One is why history? And I thought like history just gave this a f- flesh and blood urgency. I originally kind of thought this through as like a policy book and it's like, you know, here's like the five market failures and, you know, here's the, the graphs and the economic language and externalities and so and information and all that. There's two problems with that. One is that the, the puzzle doesn't feel alive to the the real struggle we face now. And also like kind of promotes this naturalness of markets in, in a way like, you know, like, well, the problem is that the market fails. Therefore, we need to like restore a good market. Um, and that, that naturalness is exactly what I want to get underneath and kind of like shiv, because I think that's exactly what's keeping us uh, in, in a kind of straitjack and not letting us think of real alternatives. Uh, you know, people talk about like there is no alternative at this point, but like history really does provide alternatives. Like people fought, people fought under worse circumstances or as bad circumstances as we face now. Um, and history also like, you know, like there's a lot of academic philosophy about like what should or should not be for sale. And to me, it's all like really rehearsed, like debate team stuff. And you don't really get like, you know, about whether or not sex work is okay or, you know, organ markets is are it? okay. Uh, who, like that's nanny state <laughs> stuff. Like I, I want to get people healthcare and I want to get people good jobs. Like, right. Like, mm-hmm. like there's this big debate, like is sex work degrading? But it's like, okay, but is low wage service work degrading without a living wage, without time off, without healthcare in a union that it never really encounters. Like, like all these stuff doesn't really get the sense that like people die because they don't have insulin or they die because they're working crazy hours and fall asleep in their car in their garage or driving. And, and so history just gives this urgency to it that I thought was really important helps kind of break that. Now, the second thing is like whether or not like looking to the past is a positive vision. And, you know, like you know, people talk a lot about the 1619 project, but I read that as like fundamentally an optimistic, like America can live up to its promise. Uh, and I, 
people can maybe debate that if that's the right read of it, but that's how I read it. And to me, that's also kind of like what I'm trying to do here is just like give people a sense that we've been in these situations before people have articulated why their lives would be better if the market could be kept in check and have fought to bring out about that world. And I think that knowing that and having that language helps restore a, a background to the uh, frontline battles that we're facing now and we'll face in, in the future. So let's talk about those uh, daycare centers uh, in World War II, because I think that's, you know, I think I think everybody is is comfortable praising the successful World War II effort in, in the United States. Um, and this is really, I think, a story not a lot of people know, right? Um, it's, it's not as, like, cinematic as uh, soldiers, you know, killing Nazis over there. Um, but it's an important, you know, part of the, the, the baseline. What, what happened? How, how did we get this done? So, um, the short answer is that a lot, we've, con- we've conscripted a lot of men. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think 20 million men are a very large number of men, uh, and push production very hard. Uh, so we needed people to work in factories and manufacturing. And so women filled in the gap and, um, at that point, there was no real daycare childcare industry. Um, women worked, but uh, women with children were, were much less likely to work. Daycares in that point were understood as an almost charitable function. Uh, in the same way, maybe like a food bank uh, is understood now that you might have daycares, but they're for women who are poor. Um, th- and that there should be some sort of disciplinary function. We use the word disciplinary negative, but like they would just understand at the time is like normal. Like, of course, we need to like keep case files on women who use daycare. We need to like tender to their soul and make sure they're going to be okay people. Uh, and the military, and what's most fascinating to me about this is the military has no interest in that whatsoever. The military does not want to play amateur social worker. They do not want to keep case files on people. They want bombers and tanks and bombs. And if you will make those things, they will get you daycare. You know, the government will make sure that you get daycare if you need it without having to worry about whether or not you're like a good mother or whether or not it's appropriate that you work given your husband or your life situation. I mean, it's very freeing. And women who experience it have very positive. Uh, these things are thrown together very quickly. And there's like, there's not a lot of places to put them. There's a lot of, it's like hard to execute, but like they get done. Like people find a way to make them happen. And there's really positive experiences of them. And a lot of women have to be like talked into it and there's huge opposition to it, but um, it still, it works and works for you know hundreds of thousands of children. And the problem is, is that there was such big opposition to it. The conservatives did not want it. The Catholic Church did not want it. The social worker community did not want it in that public universal way. And so it's rapid. There's a move to pull it back after um, the war ends. And there's a big campaign across so many states by women who had been using them to fight to keep them open. And they get one year, um, they get it continued for one year on the idea that the reconversion needs it. And then they start to articulate, well, you know, you should keep these open for women who really need them. And some people articulate, no, you should keep these open because ensuring that people can work if they choose to is part of what a modern capitalist economy should have. Women in the workplace with young children is not a problem to be solved. It's a feature of market economies that we should encourage or at least give women uh, and, and other caretakers uh, the choice to, to use. That's what's so fascinating about it, right, is the sort of pre-war childcare situation, which was not exactly that it was absent, but that it was 
bound up with a um, a concept of like like what you needed to be doing here, right? Which was fixing people who were in an extraordinary situation, right? That like the the norm, the correct outcome was that your husband earns enough money for you to not be working. There was a recognition that that's not always the case, but it's like a big problem, right? That like really has to be addressed somehow to see like, is it correct for you to be working? Well, if it is, like, why? Why is that? Like, what are we going to do to keep tabs on you? Like, make sure that this is all good. And part of getting to universal provision is convincing like the, the social work community essentially to like let it go, right? And just be like, nah. Like we're just, we're just going to do it. We're going to try to make it safe. Right. So that, so that women will leave their kids here, but like, uh, and like uh, desirable, like we, we want you to use it because we're trying to increase war production. We're not saying like, if you really need it, okay. Right. But like, we want you to use it. And we often don't have that mentality about public services in general, right? That they're, they're given today often grudgingly. Like if you, if you sign up 17 forms, you know, like we Mm -hmm. don't want you to starve. If you really need these food stamps, like you can get them. Uh, But it's not like, here's this cool thing we did. We want everybody to go get it. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, you know, here's these food stamps, but you can't spend them on all these other things. You can't spend them on hot food or, or, you know, it's not like, Actually, like here, we're going to give you unemployment insurance that's more than your income to not work because there's a pandemic, right? Like, uh, like that kind of mentality. And it's the, the thing about daycare that really jumps out also is that, um, the problem doesn't go away. It just becomes submerged in the tax code. So in the 1950s, there's still people who need daycare. And what ends up happening, um, for a variety, and it's a parallel to what happens with healthcare and employers is that President Eisenhower in 1954 essentially creates a um, tax deduction that evolves into a, a tax credit uh, over decades and it's expanded and becomes kind of a middle-class entitlement um, that basically says you can write off your childcare expenses. And it's creates a, a welfare state. You know, there's a lot of stuff written about the submerged welfare state, the hidden, um, you know, there's a lot of other visual metaphors for it. Divided. It, divided, uh, hidden, submerged. People rediscover this literature like every five years or so. And it's, but it's like, it really is an issue where it's like, we're going to make sure that this sort of works, but never actually like make it public enough that people can engage it as a public thing and make sure that it's always has private providers in the seat, which has some pros, but a lot of cons with it. And ultimately never really creates a thing where you can address it as whether or not it's solving a problem and the way people talk about like Medicare or other things that are more public. So yeah, the problem doesn't go away. It's just dealt with in this really half-assed way and we're still dealing with it 50 years later. But so correct me if I'm wrong, but at, at this time in history, you didn't have unions in the public sector. Um, you had less so. I, I don't know the exact numbers on them. Right. But I mean, I, I feel like one of the dividing lines here, like it's a little bit paradoxical because we we think of like a, a neoliberal era as dawning in the late 70s, more or less, um, you know, and, and coming on afterwards. But the big spike of public sector unionization happens like right before that in the in the 60s rather than like back in the day, right, in in the 30s or or whatever. And so I feel like today we often have disputes about public or private provision of things that are really disputes about the labor relations model 
Because like today, we have much stronger unions in the public sector than in the private sector, which was not the case in the in the 30s, right? So like, you know, if you, like it's funny, but like in Denmark, all the like city bus operations are all privatized, which in America would be considered like an incredibly right wing proposal. But that's because in America, if you say I want to privatize the bus lines, what you're actually saying is I want to bust the bus driver unions. Whereas in Denmark, you know, they have a sectoral bargain. They have a much stronger labor model. So like that's 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 not the stakes there in like who employs the bus drivers, which it really is, I think, for for childcare workers, right? The the private childcare sector is a non-union workforce with everything that comes from that. Whereas if you said, okay, well, we're going to expand public schools to start, you know, enrolling two-year-olds, three-year-olds, that's going to be in one of the most unionized sectors. And I, I don't know. I mean, like, but but that wasn't the 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 issue that was being fought over in the 40s. Yeah, no, um, that's not what they're fighting over. They're fighting over who is deserving and who is not, what should be public and what shouldn't be. Um, There's actually a a crazy court uh, administrative ruling, basically, about whether or not you could deduct childcare uh, from, I think, 39 or in the 1930s, which is like, Having children is not a public responsibility is how is basically what it reads. Uh. Uh, so we have no interest in this. And yeah, like flash forward out here, there's obviously a, a, a huge conflict about um, teacher unions and, and public sector workers more broadly. And it, it is interesting um, not to derail the conversation about it, but like how a lot of the teacher wa- strike waves of the last three or four years um often were happening in red states and often about the austerity of those red states, that they weren't strictly like, we want better stuff for ourselves as union members, that they were like, we want you to stop cutting the heck out of schools' budgets to like do right-wing tax cuts. Um, and they were also fighting about you know charter schools. And they were often articulating just a broader set of, of provisioning interest outside of their own specific interest as workers, which is cool and interesting and telling. Right. But, um, and what you would expect from like a public sector that wants the public sector to work well, as opposed to maybe if they were like private workers who didn't really care or, or other things or, or contract workers or whatnot. Um, separately, though, I still find that so much of the conversation th- that obviously is relevant, but so much of the conversation is still about deservingness and the idea that the market is the best uh, allocator and the most efficient allocator and almost a moral allocator. And I talk a lot about how freedom is talked about in market terms and market terms are talked about as freedom. Like, uh, we're free when we're in markets and being free is like being able to be in a market with the winners and losers and the risks and the rewards. And I still think that that's the bigger straitjacket than just the specific accounting documents of how much we're going to pay the workers, though that is obviously very relevant. Well, you know, if, if the public sector becomes a, a provider, right? It's like you you take it on your shoulders to then try to be a good provider, right? That's that's part of the merit of it as, as an idea, right? That it's like if you say as a politician, okay, I am going to create a new public sector institution and it's going to, I don't know, like it's going to have my name on it, you know, like Governor so-and-so uh, established uh, 2011, then like if it sucks, like that's your fault, Right. Whereas like if it's awesome, like that's good for you Um, versus like a tax credit model where you're like, here, here's some money. Like go go yell at somebody else if if the actual output sucks. Right. But that then means to, to do it right, like to build a politics of freedom from the market, you need to like deliver the goods 
so to speak, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's like a raising of your aspirations conceptually, but also in actual programmatic terms, like, or it's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually like a really good point about one of the positive things from the point of view of a politician of privatization is like, now it's someone else's problem. Go yell at their, <laughs> go yell at their customer service hotline. That doesn't work. Don't come to my office. <laughs> Even though I, we have chosen as a state to delegate this public obligation to the private sector. Yeah. So it's, it's telling like, so like, if you look at some of the things that are passing um, that are tied to freedom from market, you look at things like minimum wage bills, which are very popular everywhere. And the living wage mm-hmm. is almost by definition disentangling low wages from the marketplace. Um, and they pass very well in part because they're very easy to execute. You just put a sign on mm-hmm. the wall and says that's the minimum wage. And I think, yeah, there needs to be this like conceptual leap of faith that like we're going to do a we're going to give a lot more people Medicare and we're going to do a public option and we're going to like try to eliminate childhood poverty or cut it in half. And like people are going to understand that these are good programs and they're working well for them. So you do need the wonkery and you do need to understand how they execute well, but there does need to be a leap of faith. And I'm, I'm hoping that it happens. No, I just, I'm always struck that like, I feel like so many of today's politicians are um, like blame avoiders more than credit takers. And it's like to do this stuff, you need to want to be a credit taker, right? Like you need you you need to you need to want to say, like, I did build this, right? And it's great. Instead of like, eh, really, that's you know, the mayor's responsibility. Um which I just like I hear so much about, just like watching people recently. It's like, don't blame me. Not like you're right, I'm gonna fix that. Yeah. And it's, um, and you need to break a little bit out of the the romance of the marketplace. Because if you're like, well, you know, I'm going to unleash all this innovation in the private mm-hmm. sector, which is great for things like computers and a lot of other things, but not great for things like, are you going to be secure when you're sick or disabled or elderly or a child uh, where the innovation really can't happen? Um, you need to be able to take ownership of that. And I, I completely agree with that. Is there, is there like a principle, like, is there like a rule of thumb of like what should be done in the marketplace, um, or is it just a question of like do do what you can? So, the book talks a lot about this guy named I am Rubinoff, who I just love now, uh, who's one of the first people in America to really popularize the idea of social insurance in the 19 teens. And he has this book called Social Insurance. It's the first U.S. textbook based on research he did on Europe, where obviously there had been a lot of cross-national experiments in social insurance. And it is shocking how much that book tells us everything out here a hundred years later. <laughs> Cause like, that's the era of like industrial manufacturing and accidents. And now we're like post industrial service, high tech knowledge producers. And it's still like, you get old, you get sick, you get disabled, you're a child. Um, you have to do caregiving work. You won't get money because you capitalism only gives you money if you're working. So we need to get people money when they're not working. And so in terms of social insurance, I I actually keep a copy of this book next to me because whenever I'm hearing things about like in my job as a policy person being like, we need to create an app that will innovate like the thing about like how to fix childhood poverty. I can just like kind of hold my hand over the book and be like, that's nonsense. Like we knew this a hundred years ago, exactly how to fix these problems. So I think the social insurance um, arguments are actually pretty well developed and we can kind of look at them more broadly. I think you need to look at where um, this does go back to kind of philosophy and economics, but you need to look at where the market is bad at 
assigning allocations where, you know, people need healthcare and we make it so they need healthcare plus money. And so like, you need to think about whether or not that's a good trade. You need to look at where the bad, the market is bad at producing, where it is very inefficient or only segments off or can't get to people who would need it or can't work well in a recession as we're learning uh, over the past year or two. And then the things that I, I want to add to that in particular are spaces of domination, arbitrary power. This is like the kind of Republican, you know, philosophical Republican theory of, of freedom, places where people need accountability and voice in some sort of democratic space. Not, you know, there's been a lot of work about how if you think of the workplace as a form of government, like Elizabeth, a uh, philosopher Elizabeth Anderson puts forward, it's like really unfree. It's like a mini dictatorship. And so you want something where the, that kind of uh, power and that kind that, that which is nominally a market relationship, but it really is about power between people. You need some freedom there. And then you also want to look at the kinds of commodities that aren't actually commodities, but we treat as such things like our time, things like care, things like social reproduction, where the market doesn't really reward that in a way that is commensurate with how important it is. Um, you know, people, we need care work. We need people to be taken care of. We need children to be nurtured. We need time to replenish ourselves. And the market can only borrow against that. It doesn't pay for it uh, unless we force it to. And um, though it's sad, the circumstances of the past year that have required it, I think people are thinking more critical about care work and the way uh, a lot of that infrastructure just um, crumbled under the pandemic. All right. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. My consul uh, from Roosevelt Institute. The book is Freedom from the Market. It is it is for sale in the, the grubby world of commodities um, and, and free exchange. Uh, everybody should should check it out there. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, uh, and The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.